Hebrews chapter 1, and for context, let's begin in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the, God, the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word and all that it means to us. And we know that it's far beyond anything we could ever imagine it to be, Lord, in its sufficiency. But we are grateful, Lord, that you've called us to build our lives upon it, not just hearing it, but doing it, Lord, by your grace and by your power. I pray that you'd use these verses, Lord, to further conform us into the image of Christ, to make us more gracious with one another, to be more patient with one another, to be more loving, to be more available for your Spirit's use in one another's lives. Help us, Lord, as a family to love one another boldly. We thank you, Lord, that you love us boldly. Help us to love others with the same love with which you've loved us. We commit this time to you. We ask that you'd set it aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When we started this book last week, we saw that this book and, and, and what's contained in it has a very specific message. The message is to communicate to Jewish believers that their contemplation of going backwards, back into Judaism, is a foolish contemplation, or them considering that it, it would be a foolish decision if they followed through with it. Going back to Judaism, as they were considering, ceasing to uh, identify with Christ, going back under the law, going back under all the Jewish traditions and the sacrificial system, would be a great mistake. They were in the middle of something incredibly profound and difficult to deal with. They were dealing with persecution, and it was ramping up. It's about 67 to 68 AD at this point. The temple is still going. The sacrifices are still being made and offered up. But God knew that that was about to cease, that he was going to allow Titus, the Roman general, to come in and overtake that temple. And, and as Jesus prophesied, not one stone would be left and they did such a thorough job 
uh, that every single one of those words was fulfilled. He really did allow them to throw down every massive stone. And the, the retaining wall that's there in Jerusalem today was what's referred to as the Western Wall. That wasn't part of the temple. That was part of the retaining wall outside the temple. And so part of that's still left, but there is not one part of that temple that's left there. Every part of it was destroyed. So these Jewish believers contemplating going back to Judaism, they're thinking that maybe if we go back to these sacrifices, that'll be good enough. But God knows that those sacrifices aren't going to continue. And he knows that what he's given them is so much superior and better than they could have ever had in the, in the Jewish system, the Jewish, the way God had set things up, that it would be foolish to go back. But they were comfortable in their traditions. I think we all are. I have traditions that I'm very comfortable with. A lot of times they, what are you laughing for? A lot of times they have, they, they have to do with eating, eating traditions. You know, I, I, I like that. It's, I'm very comfortable with eating traditions. But I have other traditions too, and we won't get into those because we want to stay spiritual and, and, and not carnal. Uh, but these Jewish believers had traditions just like any of us. That's my point. They, they had traditions just like all of us, and it was, they were so, as we looked at last week, they were so steeped in those Jewish uh, uh, traditions. It was so like, it was, and we talked about the imagery of, a, of an old glove that you put on and just fits so perfectly. They had lived this life of this Judaism and, and not being identified with Christ and all those traditions and so forth that it was, it was very tempting and very easy for them to go back. And we can think about our own lives and think about the places from which we came, being saved out of this world. We can think about how easy it could be in some of our times of weakness and temptation where we think it would just be easier just to go back into the world and just live after my own flesh. And we can think that that would be a better life. And God wants to warn us in this book. It's not just for Jewish believers. It's for any believer that's contemplating going back that what we would go back to, as Peter refers to, you know, a dog, a dog returning to its vomit, is so much worse than what we already have. And so he wants to encourage us in that. So how did he do it? Well, we saw last week that the writer started talking about the theme of Hebrews. And I'm going to quiz you. I told you I'm going to quiz you when I see you around. What's the theme of Hebrews? Three words. Jesus is better. Very good. You're listening. That's great. That's very encouraging. You know, I, I know what it's like to get bored in during a sermon. Sometimes I fall asleep while I'm teaching. You don't even know it. So I want to test you to make sure that you're listening. So that's correct. Jesus is better. And he mentions the word better in the book of Hebrews 13 times. And he mentions them in very strategic places, as we'll see. We're going to get to one of them in our passage this morning. But as we saw last week, he's a better revelation. He's a better revelation than the prophet's. He's better than the prophets, as wonderful the prophets are. He's better than the angels, as we'll look at this morning. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. He's, better than, he's a better Sabbath rest than the traditional Sabbath. He's a better high priest. He's, a better, he has, he's, he's caused a better covenant uh, for us to enjoy. He's, he has arranged better access to God with better promises associated with that new covenant with a better resurrection. I mean, all these things you could, we're going to explore, but it's pervasive throughout the whole book. Jesus is better and what he offers is better. And what I want to highlight, as I did last week, is that there's nothing wrong with these things. The writer is not saying that there's anything wrong with 
God's speaking through the prophets or the old covenant or Moses or Aaron or, or, or the high priest or the old covenant or, or any of those, the sacrificial system, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with those things. They have their place. Jesus didn't come to contradict the law. He came to fulfill the law. And so here we have to remember that the writer is not saying these things are bad. He's just saying in comparison to the son, they're infinitely inferior to him. And what they have is so much better. It would be foolish to go back. And as we saw, the writer's going to warn them. And as I said, some people like to refer to them as exhortations, but they're pretty serious. So I think that the word warning would be better than an exhortation. But there is incredible consequences to, to rejecting Christ and to turning back uh, to this world. And so God wants to encourage us, not only give us the warning as we go through this book of going back, but also to us for us to fully appreciate what we have in Christ. I think we're going to spend the rest of our days in this life and in the, the next life, I mean, in, on, on, on into eternity, appreciating what we have in Christ and our amazing inheritance. I mean, I remember when we went through Ephesians, the whole first chapter is one big, long, run-on sentence. It drives English teachers batty. How many, this long run-on sentence all the way down of all of our inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus. And so we need to appreciate that. We need to be good stewards of that because there's a whole other issue of stewardship related to these things. And God has expectations related to how we should live our lives because we are the recipients of these superior things that he lists in this amazing book. So very excited about what we're going to see. Now in verses 1 through 3, we're told that Jesus was a better revelation. We saw that last week, that he's better than the prophets, that um, he gives better revelation. He's the final revelation. Everything that we see today with or hear or experience today related to prophecy, because there's prophets in the book of Acts, uh, or prophetic utterances today, or anything that we would say is inspired of God, is, is, is related to the final revelation, that is the Lord Jesus. He's the final revelation to this world related to uh, who God is. And so, uh, as we saw, he's focusing on the fact that God, it, it, or Jesus rather, is is God the Son, and he is a superior revelation to anything that came before. As wonderful as those things and those people and those prophets were, very much inferior to uh, who, who Jesus is. And so we, we saw in verse 2 that he's the heir of all things. We saw also that he's the creator of all things in verse 2. We saw that he's the radiance of the Father's glory in verse 2, and the manifestation of the Father's essence in verse 3. And he continued on explaining exactly who the Son is, that he's the, the sustainer of all things by his word. When he says he holds all things together by the word of his power, or some translations say his powerful word, he's holding everything together. That's the superior Son that's superior to all the prophets, and that he's, he's divine. He's God in human flesh. He's not just the Son of God, he's God the Son. And the cults mix that up and get that wrong. But he's also divine, not just a great moral teacher. Sometimes people say, Jesus is a moral teacher and he's a prophet and I respect him. The problem is, and C.S. Lewis made this very well known, prophets and good teachers don't claim to be God when they're not. They can't be a good teacher. They can't be a prophet if they claim to be God and they're mistaken. And Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. He said in John eight fifty eight that before Abraham was, I am. When they picked up stones to stone him, he was claiming to be 
God. He was claiming to be divine. In so many places in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we're told that the Son is God. In Isaiah 9, 6, he'll be called many things, but also he'll be called mighty God. We're talking a monotheistic belief system of Judaism would never believe in two gods. So he's the one God who reveals himself in three persons. So we saw that. But we also saw that he accomplished something. Being that divine God, being that amazing God that, who, who is everything that the Father is, he accomplished something for us in verse 3, we're told. That he purged our sins. He cleansed us from our sins and that the redemptive work is finished. And that brings a great uh, comfort to our hearts that his work is finished. And he communicated it to us when he he said there in verse 3 that he sat down at the right hand of God. And as I mentioned, to the Jewish mind, that would mean everything. Sat down means a finished work. There was no chairs in in the tabernacle or the temple, in the holy place, in the most holy place. That work was continuing all the time. It was going, 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 working, working, working. God set it up that way because he knew that a finished work would be coming to where the, the high priest that represented mankind would have a finished work that would be able to sit down and be able to be uh, in, have intercession for us. Now, in verse 4, we're told this morning, he says, having become so much better, there's our word better, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. So here we see the beginning of him talking about that Jesus is better or superior to the angels. And the writer is going to give us four reasons why Jesus is better than the angels. He's going to say that he's better because the son has a unique relationship with the father. In verse 5, he's going to tell us that he's superior because he... he uh, because the inferior always worships the superior. The angels of God worship the Son, and you always have the inferior worshiping the superior. Thirdly, he's superior to angels because the Son is eternal. We're going to see that in verses 8 through 12. And then lastly, he's superior to the angels because the Son sits at the right hand of the Father, we're told in verses 13 and 14. So that's kind of a snapshot of where we're going. But as you see in verse 4, we're told that he became... Having, it says, have become so much better than the angels. Uh, that raises a question. If Jesus is God, how, you know, how could he become better? Wouldn't he always be better than the angels? And I think the way it's worded, it can be a little bit confusing because what he's really getting at is that Jesus' finished work upon the cross, his death, his resurrection, revealed something. It revealed to all mankind. It demonstrated to all mankind that he is better than the angels. He was always better than the angels. But it became apparent to everybody that, was, that is watching, all mankind, that he's better than the angels based on what he accomplished uh, as the son who came as the Messiah and died for mankind's sin. So as the God-man, the Messiah has a, who finished a redemptive work, he uh, and the Father are equal, but his name has a... a, a uh, it's famous now for being that redemptive Messiah that came, that conquered death, hell, and the grave. And so he proved, he proved or revealed himself to be better than the angels because no angel could ever do that and no angel did that. So he gets now to the son's unique relationship with the father in verse 5. He says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Now, this is the first of seven Old Testament scriptures. I told you that last week that the writer is going to make a biblical case for Jesus being better. He's not just going to tell those Jewish believers to believe him because he says so. He's going to give biblical evidence that Jesus, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is superior and better than, than uh, the angels and anything, any, everything else that he mentions in the rest of the book. He's going to give biblical support for that. So he's going to give us seven Old Testament scriptures. You can look up the specific references on your own. I'll mention maybe a few of them. But five of these Old Testament references are from the Psalms. One is from Deuteronomy. He quotes from the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then one is from uh, Samuel, from 2 Samuel. So that's interesting, though, because in the Jewish mind, David would be very important. He wrote at least half the Psalms. And, and of course, Samuel would be just after Moses in terms of the, the preeminence of, of the, the, them being uh, accepting them as prophets and, and, and spokesmen for God. So he's, he's quoting some very significant people, but I want you to also know that he's not ha- asking these Jewish believers to trust in man and man's word because he equates these things with God speaking. Notice there he says in verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say? So he's equating these scriptures with God speaking. He's equating what these men wrote as inspired, you know, as the inspired word of God. And so that's very important because that's the standard. Everything has to be seen as the, in related to the word of God as this is God speaking. It's, it's inspired by God. And so that's what he's pointing to. God's word declared the son to be superior to angels. And, 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 and angels are very important to the Jews. Very, very important. They're listed over 300 times in, in the Bible. And so in the Jewish history, you can't separate what God did in their, in their lives from the ministry of angels. And as Gentiles, it's hard for us to remember that and think about that. But they were so steeped in their history and their culture and the scriptures, you, you couldn't divorce their thinking from the ministry of angels and their history. You know, you think about all the way back to the garden when God put angels you know, to guard the garden. So after they fell, they wouldn't go back and eat from the, the tree of life. You know, and you think about, you know, Abraham would be probably the most important person in their history. And you remember that there was two angels along with Christ in, in an appearance before he, you know, was, was incarnated there. And, and, and these two angels were speaking to him. And it was all about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and Lot and so forth. And, and they were even involved in helping Lot come out of uh, uh, of Sodom there. And so they, they, they had a very, very uh, powerful ministry in the Old Testament. And you think of the one time where one angel slew 185,000 Assyrians. Just one angel. It didn't even mention his name. Someone has said that he didn't even, you know, say this is Bob or this is Larry the angel. It didn't even see, it was, think it was important to mention the name of the angel. Just an anonymous angel slew 185,000 Assyrian troops dead. You think of the tabernacle and how they had them weave pictures of angels within the tapestry of the, of the, uh, the, the curtains and the, the, the walls of the tabernacle to remind those priests of heaven and how there's angelic hosts all surrounding uh, the, the whole environment in, in, uh, in heaven to remind them of that. I mean, it was all through their history. The Holy of Holies, you had two angels that had their wings folded over the, the mercy seat there to, re, to remind them of, of angels. And so it's very important in their history. 
Even in Isaiah, in chapter 6, when we're told that Isaiah has a picture of of, of heaven, he sees a vision of God there on the throne and and so forth. It says this in in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the, and the uh, posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Very important ministry of, that these angels had in the lives of, of God's people. And so we, we, you, know, you go through the whole Old Testament. Balaam's donkey saw an angel and was kind of trying to get out of the way and kind of crushed uh, you know, his leg. And he was mad at it and the donkey spoke back. And it's really bad when you lose an argument to a donkey. Um, but but uh, you know, that's kind of what was happening. But the, the, the angel was engaged with, with Balaam and, and had a message for him. And so even today, when we think about angels, they're very popular. We don't have that show touched by an angel I don't think I don't think that's going anymore but that was very popular people are really into angels I'm not sure why it's always puzzled me why people are more interested in angels than they are God maybe it's because angels aren't known for having you know uh, holiness standards you know and caring about how people live in terms of what they communicate in an overt way but uh, I don't know why but People love to talk about angels. They believe in angels. There's atheists that believe in angels, which still troubles me as well, why they can recognize that there's angels, but not uh, God himself, who would be the creator of angels. And so it's, it's very important. Now, Billy Graham has a great book on angels. If you ever want to read a book outside the scriptures related to angels, that's very biblically based. I would recommend Billy Graham's book on angels. There's a lot of good angel stories there. How many of us have angel stories? You believe that a guardian angel protected you or had something to do with, yeah, people are raising their hands here for the record, for the podcast. There are people raising their hand. You are listening uh, at home or in the car. But I do believe that God has guardian angels for us. I do believe that. And uh, we're told in many places that angels are very active and so forth. And so, but the point is, they're great. And the writer is not putting them down. They're, yes, they're very involved in your history. They're just not the sun. You have the sun. He is so much better than the angels. And that's why the quote in Psalm 2 verse 5, when he says, uh, for which of the, which, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The answer is none. He never said that to any angel. And he's trying to remind these readers, these Jewish readers, that there is no time in history that he ever called an angel his son. Now he calls sometimes angels sons of God, and that's something entirely different, but it's not the singular, you know, son of God, the son of God. That's something that's designated for the son of God, and he never refers to angels in that way. It's important for us to know the word begotten there in verse 5. He's speaking of the incarnation, 
The cults like to use that to try to say that Jesus was created. Jesus was never created. He never had a beginning. If he's God, he has to be eternal. And so he never had a beginning. And, and so they like to say, well, he's begotten, see? But that just means that, in the New Testament especially, it means that he's unique. But he's talking about when he brought him in his, into the world, when he brought him into this world and he was, had the incarnation occur, that that was the fulfillment of, of him bringing forth his son and proclaiming to the world, this is my son for you, and, he, and he's going to forgive you of your sins. But he continues, he says there, the rest of verse 5, I will be a, to him a father, and he shall be to me a Son. And this is a quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. The context is David is having great prosperity at this time. And he wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple. And you know how God is when you, when you have something in your heart to do for him. So often he will come and he will just one-up you and say, well, you want to do this for me? Well, I'm going to do this for you and blow your mind. And that's what he did to David. He said to David that I'm going to build you a house. And he talks about that his lineage and his, his uh, descendants were going to be blessed and there's, he's going to have someone on the throne uh, forever. And that basically the Messiah was going to be uh, one of his descendants there. And so that's what, that's what he quotes. And, and that's interesting because God always overwhelms our desires to bless him with even greater blessing. He, he will, you can never outgive God. And here David had in his heart to bless uh, God by, cre- by, by uh, building this temple. And, and God says that it's not going to be you. You can prepare everything, but your son's going to be the one that's going to build it, Solomon. And Solomon did. And so he, he blesses him and he overwhelms him with his grace. And, and, um, and, and I'm sure that that meant so much to David. And then he says in verse 6, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32 verse 43 from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation. It's a little bit different in ours, but he's quoting from the Greek uh, translation there. And, and it, it, he's saying, though, that Jesus is the firstborn, that he is, when he brings his firstborn into the world, the firstborn does not mean the first one actually born. Uh, it's talking about one that's preeminent, the one that's, in, that's overseeing everything. So what he's saying here is that when he brings again the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Again, the inferior always worships the superior. That's the point he's driving home to these Jewish believers. Jesus, the son, has to be superior to the angels because if, why else would they worship him? And, and so he's giving a biblical basis. Now it's good for us to focus on what worship is. I know Dave will like this, being our worship leader, to talk about a little bit. Uh, but you can't separate angels from worship in terms of how, what's going on in heaven and how they've been engaging God's people and encouraging them to worship and pointing uh, them to God all through the history of God's people. The word for worship there is proskuneo, and it's two words joined together. It's a, it's a preposition, which is pros, which means to be toward or before something. And then there's kaneo, which means to bow down low and to basically kiss the feet or kiss the hand of a monarch or something. So it, it, it's really speaking of bowing down and facing somebody and worshiping. And I want us to turn, hold your place here. I want us to turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Hold your place in Hebrews 1. And I want us to look at a scene that's going on in heaven 
and how it relates to worship and how it relates to uh, angels being engaged and, and being involved in that worship and how they relate to the sun in that context. This is a little bit of uh, coming attractions because we're going to be getting to uh, Revelation here in a few months. I'm very excited about that. But I don't think it's wrong to read ahead a little bit. I'm hoping that we're all reading ahead as we're going through the New Testament. Revelation chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 11. It says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a lot. (laughs) Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, there's the Son, forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down, there's our word, fell down, and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And I just love to just pause for a moment and just consider this. In heaven, Nobody is shy about being expressive related to their worship of God. No one's holding back. Everyone is bold. Everybody is letting everything go in their, in their worship because he's worthy of that worship. And the angels are engaged in that. And that's the point he's going to be getting, getting at related to ministering spirits. They're ministering to us, but also they minister to him. And, and there's an infinite distance between the creator and the creation. And angels are part of the creation. But look in these verses how engaging they are with God and how they pour out everything to God and worship God. And you have the 24 elders falling down, worshiping him, and, and giving every part of worship and every part of praise that they possibly can to God. That's what God's aiming at in our lives. Worship is a, a way of life. It's not just a time where we, we sing to God. It's our whole life needs to represent worship. But God wants to work in our lives and wants us to receive his work in our lives in such a way to where we hold nothing back with our lives. We give everything, everything we offer over to him as a living sacrifice. And it's a beautiful thing when a life is spent that way. It's the most high calling that we could ever have to live our lives totally, completely given over in worship uh, to God because he is worthy of it. But there's so many things related to Revelation 5 that back up Hebrews 1. You see the angel subservient to God and the Lamb, who's the Son. Infinite distance between the two. And you see them engaged in service, which we're going to get to in a moment. Now we can turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. He says in verse 7, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Interesting here. This, this, the view of, of, of angels. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I'd like to see an angel. You, you better be careful about what you want to see. Because in the New Testament and, and even in the Old Testament, it was pretty profound. Now, angels can take on the form of a human to where people don't even know that they are an angel. We're to, actually, we're going to be told at the end of this book that sometimes we entertain angels without knowing it. And, and, but there is 
when, when we see in Scripture where they actually see them in their, their form, or at least a form that uh, is um, you know, possible for us to handle, we're, the, 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 the awe and, and, and the effect that it has on us even makes us want to worship the angels. And that's what we see in Scripture as something that makes them very nervous and skittish. They don't want anything to do with that. It's a very touchy subject with angels. You see in, you see in Revelation where John tries to worship, don't do that. That's the, what they say right away, don't do that. And you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. That's the Lord Jesus when it says the angel of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. You can see him. But times where they're, they're, someone wants to worship them and they're just an angel, no, 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 don't do that. And I, it very well could be because they have a very short memory related to what happened with Lucifer. Lucifer had that pride. He wanted to be worshipped. And they saw what happened to him and the third of the angels that fell with him and became demons. That's what happened. And they're very sensitive to that. They know, as you know with your own life, but of course they know it as well because they're in God's physical presence in, in, a, in a dynamic way that, that we're not. But the closer you get to the Lord, the more you see how amazing he is, the greater distance you see between you and him. I mean, Isaiah, in, in chapters 1 through 5, in Isaiah, he's Mr. Woe, you know, woe to them, woe to, woe to them, woe to them. And then he's saying, woe is me, when he sees God. Woe is me, I'm, you know, and, and there's nothing clean about him, he thinks, and knows about himself. And so that's important for us to understand because these angels are beautiful they're 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 ministering spirits as as we'll see in a moment but they do not want to be worshiped and they should never ever be worshiped now he gets to the section where jesus is better because he's eternal in verses 8 through 12 he starts in verse 8 he says but to the son he says your throne O god is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom it's one of my favorite verses in the bible especially if you're trying to share your faith with a Jehovah's Witness or someone that denies the deity of Christ. Because here you have the Father addressing the Son as God. Look at that in verse 8. But to the Son, he says, who's he? The Father. To the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's saying that you are God. I mean, if you don't want to, how could you get more proof than that where the Father calls the Son God? You can say that to a Jehovah's Witness. What if I could show you one verse? Where, the, where Jehovah calls the Son God. Well, he doesn't say that. He would never say it. But what if he did? We don't like hypotheticals. Well, I do. <laughs> you know, I want to talk about hypotheticals. I don't think it's a hypothetical. But what if you saw Jehovah call the Son God? What would you say? Well, it doesn't say that. <sighs> Give me see your King James Bible, not your New World silly clown Bible. I want to see your, your, uh, your, your King James version. Because you do believe in the King James, right? Yes. Okay. And you take them to this verse and they're just reading it over and over and over and over and over. I can't believe that it says what it says. Your translation changed it to God is your throne. That's how they interpret it in their clown version. God is your, th- God is your throne. They change it completely. But here, Jesus, it can't be mistaken. He's being called God by the Father. And then he adds at the last part of verse 8, a scepter of righteousness is your scepter, is the scepter of your kingdom. What's a scepter? We don't really talk a lot about scepters. They're, they're like an or, ornamental kind of symbol rod, ornamental rod which symbolizes a monarchy or what the kingdom or the, what the king represents. That's what a scepter is. And so he says, that's the scepter. That's what symbolizes the, our king. 
That's what that represents his ministry and what he's about and what how he is among his creation. He's righteous. And I love that. I am so tired of being ruled by unrighteous man and having kings be wicked and, and corrupt. I'm ready for Jesus to rule and reign on this, in this world because he will reign with, a, with a, a righteousness that we need. Then he continues on that same line of thinking in verse 9. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Wow. That's good for us to see as his people, isn't it? If he loves righteousness and hates lawlessness, don't we think or don't we realize that he's working, wanting to work in our lives to where we are loving righteousness and hating lawlessness in an increasing way? But in our culture with entertainment and all these things that encroach upon our devotion to the Lord, we get desensitized and we stop, being, we stop hating lawlessness. We will pay money to, to see it and to be entertained by it. And I exhort myself. It's very searching. God loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. He knows what lawlessness does to people that he loves. That's why, as I've said for a long time, sin isn't funny. Sin is not funny to God. It causes damage to people that he loves. We had these children up here earlier. We think it's funny if they had sin committed against them, even in the smallest way. We don't think it's funny. Well, God has so much more of a pure heart towards us than we could ever have towards these children. He hates lawlessness. He hates those things because he loves people so much. So he says there also, therefore God, he's calling him God again. Look at there. Therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus was uh, anointed with the oil of gladness more than any any other person in this universe. And that separates him from anyone else. He was anointed and he was blessed way beyond any angel could ever be blessed by God. So what angel did God ever say, you're God and you have a kingdom and you have a scepter and it's righteousness and all these things? No angel ever had any, ever had the father say that to to them. So he's just making it such an airtight case. But he continues with how the son is eternal in verses 10 through 12. He says, verse 10, and you, Lord, now that's the word Yahweh there in, in the Old Testament that he's quoting from. And you, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. The heavens and the earth are fallen. They are, they are passing away. We're told in Romans that they're groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. And so they, God is saying here through this writer, by the Spirit, to these people, these Jewish believers, that no angel ever had the longevity that, that the Son has. As he says, you laid the foundation of the earth. He's already told them that he's the creator. He's already covered that. But he's mentioning it again. You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. No angel ever created anything. And it says, they will perish, but you remain. In other words, the immutability of God, he doesn't change. He's never going to change. And, and he's going to stay the same. I love that, that the, the verse that we're going to get to in chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We change, but God doesn't change. And I'm so glad that we have such a faithful, amazing, righteous, holy, perfect, 
a merciful, gracious God that, that, that doesn't change. If we had a God that we didn't, we, we didn't like or a God that was bad, we would want him to change for the better. But we don't have to worry about that because we have a God that is perfect and flawless. And so everything else is going to pass away. But God does, will never pass away. And so in that, he is eternal. And in that, he is superior to angels. Verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Now he begins to quote Psalm 110 here. And he's going to be referencing this psalm and alluding to this psalm for many chapters. And we're going to be unpacking all of that and getting into all that. But again, the picture is that he's seated that would, that would be like a bomb going off in the, in the mind of the Jewish believer because his ministry is finished in terms of his redemptive work, but he has a place of authority. No angel sits at the right hand of the Father. That's a place of great authority. You know, you remember the disciples trying to get that place uh, assigned to them for when they were going to go to heaven someday. You know, will you allow us to sit at your right hand and your left and so forth? They even got their mom involved. How pathetic is that? <laughs> get your mom involved to petition the Lord related to your spot in heaven. But we're not above that. I, I could see myself doing that. I'd be, you know, I'm no better than anybody else. And you, I think you're the same way too. You might, you might do that too. Uh, but, there, you know, this place of, of, of preeminence there, sitting at the right hand of God, and until I make... Your enemies, your footstool. When did God ever say that to an angel? When has an angel ever sat at the right hand of God? When did, when did the Father ever say to an angel that he's going to make the angel's enemies their footstool? Never. Never, ever, ever hap- would ever happen. And so he wants to make sure. I'm not criticizing angels, but they just have no even close comparison to the Son. And it's all through their scriptures. So it's not just this man's opinion. He's saying from Scripture, uh, there's no comparison between the Son and angels. And then he says what their, in verse 14 what their, what their true ministry is. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They are called to minister to us. And we're told in Matthew 18, when he talks about the guardian angels, he says that each child has more than one guardian angel. Uh, and so we have guardian angels because God, we never grow up. We're still his children always. We have guardian angels, so we have at least two guardian angels. And, and, and so God sends them to minister. And I believe that many of us have had our lives spared multiple times. And we had no idea God was doing that through these angels. But he, they do. And, they, and that's, it's their joy to, to serve the Lord by doing that. Now, there's two words for minister here in verse 14, and they're different words. I want you to know that. The first one when it says, are they not all ministering spirits? That's, that's the word from which we get our word uh, liturgy. And that is talking about an official public service, like the priests in the Old Testament. They would give service to the Lord. They would do their official duties, their public duties as uh, priests. And that's the word that he uses. But then he uses another word. It's a verb there. And it says that these ministering spirits are sent forth to minister. That's a whole other word. That's the word from which we get our word deacon. And that's talking about very practical things. It's actually literally waiting on tables or doing errands. So the real meaning of verse 14, are they not all, uh, you know, priestly uh, worshipers who worship the Father by doing 
running errands for his people or to be doing practical things for uh, his people that will inherit salvation. That's really the sense. And so we could be thankful for that, that God's given us uh, angels to minister and to help us in very practical ways that we're, we're not aware of. So there's so much here related to Jesus being superior to angels. But I think the, the main thrust of, of this whole chapter and, of course, the whole book is for us to appreciate it to just thank the Lord for what he's given us and to be good stewards of what he's entrusted us with. The, the, the Jewish system and the whole, everything that God set up, there's no system on earth in, in man's history or even in the future that can come, even come close to what God set up. And God did set it up. But that doesn't even compare to the covenant that we're in. Sometimes people get all Jewish on me. You know, they, they're Gentiles and they, they want to become Jewish. And, you know, and, there's, and that's fine. There's, there's things in our heritage that we need to appreciate. It all points to Christ, uh, Christ, Colossians tells us. Everything, all those things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. And I appreciate that. But we're in a better covenant. We're going to get to that. He uses the word better. We're in a better covenant. And it's not a con- uh, related to a physical inheritance like the Jews had. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual inheritance. And it's not based on our works and our faithfulness like the old covenant. It was ba- it's based on God's faithfulness. And so it's so better in so many different ways. So it's supposed to provoke worship in us and appreciation and good stewardship. And that, I trust that the Spirit will lead us in accomplishing those things. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And so much, there's so much here, Lord, to have you take and work in our lives and through our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you are superior to angels and and anything else. We're thankful that we get to enjoy a better covenant because of what you did for us and what you accomplished for us, Lord. So we ask, Lord, that you would take these verses and as we meditate on them and think about them, we pray that you would use them for your purposes in our lives. We thank you for our guardian angels that we have. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you, Lord, for how you have probably saved each one of our lives multiple times over because of them. We thank you for them, but we thank you that Jesus is infinitely superior to them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.